Hi, my name is Michael, and welcome back to the USC Christian Challenge podcast. Wherever we go, whether at school, at work, or with friends, we are constantly affected by partiality. In fact, partiality is so prevalent in our daily lives that we may even exhibit this behavior ourselves. However, according to the gospel, exhibiting partiality to anyone goes against our faith in Christ. Continuing in our series, Real Faith in the Real World, Aaron is going to discuss why partiality is an issue in our belief in Christ and how we should respond to it as we continue through the book of James. Welcome to Challenge. If you're looking for seats, we have prime rows right in the front. And I promise not to spit or do anything crazy, kick you with a high kick or anything. But yeah, lots of seats in the front. If you have a seat next to you, could you slide in the middle just when people come in late, then they can just slip in on the sides. It makes things more comfortable for them. Okay, I have a question for you guys. How many of you guys are middle children? Do we have it? Oh, there are. I was like, I figure in the 2.5 children world, there might not be many middle children. This is a picture of my family a long time ago. This is before puberty, before my hair turned curly. But there are three middle children in this photo. So both of my parents actually are middle children. My mom was the very middle of three. And then my dad was in the messy middle of six. So, you know, and then my brother is the middle of uh, my sister and I. But um you know, parents do the best they know to do. Um, and the older I get, the more grateful I am for my parents and the more I kind of understand them. And obviously none of us are raised in perfect homes. Every home has its own issues. And in my home, my mom was actually raised in a home where her parents showed favoritism. Favoritism in such a way that it really deeply impacted her life in such a way that she vowed that to the best of her ability, we would not experience favoritism. And having three children, that's pretty hard. So the next slide kind of shows us as adults. So the two stories I'm gonna tell are as adults because as a child, I was unaware of this. You know, there's things you learn in adulthood that you just didn't know when you were a kid. But after my dad passed away when I was in college, my mom actually went back to work as a nurse at the hospital where he worked. And as she was signing, you know, paperwork with HR to figure out life insurance, she wanted to divide it equally three ways. And they told her that was not possible because you can't have it by cents. It can't be like 33 cents or 34 cents. And so they said, you have to pick one child to get an extra dollar. And my mom to this day refuses to tell us which child, that was like 15 years ago, she moved and worked at a different hospital. Like even if Audrey, who was met my mother, asked her, my mom would not tell her, for fear that it would get back to one of us, that one of us was loved an extra dollar more than the other. And it's like, we have these theories, like I'm the poorest, so I would get the dollar. Like my brother's the, the son, he's the only Gillum heir. Like maybe my brother or my sister probably needs the money most, the extra dollar. She has four little boys. But another story that goes along with that is that I was the last, I'm the oldest. I know I give off major firstborn vibes if those of you who are like, it's like, oh gosh. When people are like, are you the youngest? I'm like, do you know me? Have we had a conversation? I'm so bossy, it's not even funny. <laughs> but I was like, I have very strong opinions. Um, my parents had to read books about dealing with strong-willed children when I was born. <laughs> so, um, so fast forward, I'm the last, the oldest, but the last to get my master's. My sister and brother surpassed me educationally, but hey, I finally did it. But it just so happened that I was graduating with my master's the exact same weekend that my brother was graduating with his PhD. Um, and to rewind the story a little bit, my brother, um, as a child was diagnosed with a, I don't know if it's rare, but it's a really difficult form of dyslexia where he was, 
my parents were told that he may not be able to learn to read. And so I remember we lived in a tiny town in Oklahoma. We, I remember driving to Oklahoma City like two and a half hours one way, meeting with this child specialist ophthalmologist. And like, you just have to know my parents, like my parents are voracious readers. Like when my dad died, the librarian sent flowers to us because my dad loved the library. On his day off, he would go if he had extra time and like read newspapers from all over the world. Because what kind of news do you get in rural Oklahoma? It's like, who got divorced that week? <laughs> all, you know, it's like, you don't even want to know what small town newspapers are like. So, <clears throat> so my parents, blood, sweat, and tears went into helping my brother learn to read, right? So this is like a major mile. So this kid who was illiterate and there was chances that he may never learn to read. He's graduating. We've defended his thesis. He's got these major awards. My mom's like, no, I've been to your brother's master's ceremony. I've been to your sister's. I'm not going to miss yours. My poor brother only had my uncle who lived four hours and a soon-to-be ex-girlfriend. And I had like 10 or 12 people. I had two of my three or three of my no, two of my three college roommates lived in LA. They came, Neil and Melinda's daughter came. I had so many people at my graduation and then my, I couldn't find a picture of my brother at his ceremony. It's like, my brother, the ex-girlfriend, and my uncle. It's like, And it's like a huge milestone in his life. But like, that's how much favoritism impacted my mom and to the extent that she didn't want me to feel slighted in any way, which I appreciate. And I'm sure while I'm telling you these stories, ideas and scenarios come to your mind of, times when you have been on the receiving end of favoritism and really how much it hurts and how much it impacts us. And often I think um, we kind of just shove favoritism off as like, it's not that big of a deal. But really when you look at scripture, it's a heart issue. It's not a behavioral issue. It has to do with our hearts. And ultimately how we think life works and how God has designed life to works don't always line up, do they? So tonight we're gonna to look at one such example in scripture and prayerfully God's gonna use his word to expose our hearts and to line it up with his. So we're continuing in the series on James. This is week three. If you've missed it, you can go online and listen to the first two messages, but we're just continuing on in this letter that the brother of Jesus wrote to the early church. So he's writing to a group of Christ followers, trying to help them just learn what practical Christian living looks like. So this book slash letter helps us know how to respond to God, but also how to maintain Christ-like character in our relationships. So tonight we're gonna look at something that honestly I've never really given much attention to, but James gave attention to it. And so therefore we're gonna give some attention to it tonight. Favoritism. You probably, I don't know if you've ever heard, heard a sermon on favoritism. I haven't. Um, but I'm glad you're here tonight. You can't say that after tonight, can you? So Merriam-Webster defines favoritism as this, the unfair practice of treating some people better than others. The unfair practice of treating some people better than others. So this Greek word favoritism that we're gonna look at in this passage tonight in James 2, it literally means receive according to the face. Receive according to the face. So in essence, it's saying to show favoritism is to really make judgments about people on the basis of their outward appearance. So before we get too far into this idea, I want us to read the whole passage and then we're just gonna break it up chunk by chunk. So this is found in James 2. If you have your Bible, it's, if not, it's gonna be on the screen, verses one through 13. And James writes this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. 
If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, here, stand here or sit at the feet on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom we belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever gives the whole law, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do commit adultery, but do not commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So maybe you read this and you think like me, you know, with all the problems in the world, like back then, ancient times and today, like James, why are you using precious ink to like address this topic, I think? Have you had your feelings hurt, James? Is this like you're like calling people out opportunity? Like what's really going on here? What's the big deal? Isn't this just how the world works? This is the world that we live in. None of this is surprising to us, right? We all know we've taken history classes, we live in America today, that throughout history and even today, people in society have been treated differently based on the amount of money they have, right? The status that they have. And in our modern day, we really want to impress people with money. Why? Because we know that they often have a great deal of power and influence and that can help us. So James is saying, I wanna go back to that James 2, one through four, reread that because we're gonna talk a little bit more through that. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you sit there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So it's really interesting. James is one of the most practical books of the New Testament because he just puts it on the bottom shelf. We read that first verse like, okay, my dear brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. I think we understand that. We don't need to like look at the original language. It's like, it's pretty clear what he's meaning. Don't show favoritism. But remember, he is writing to followers of Jesus. He's not just writing to Joe Schmo on the street. He's writing to people who say, I want to follow Jesus. I am living my life for Jesus. He's saying, do not show favoritism. Not like, if you're having a bad day, it's okay. Or if you you really need something, you don't have enough food that day, it's okay. No, no, just never, never show favoritism. And why? Why do you think that is? Well, I learned some things this week that I want to share with you guys tonight. Because favoritism is inconsistent with God's character. Favoritism is inconsistent with God's character. Impartiality is an attribute of God. He is absolutely, totally impartial in dealing with people. Romans 2.11 on the screen says, there is no favoritism for God shows no favoritism. If we're supposed to be like God, then we shouldn't show favoritism. I should just like stop there. Right? Like, okay, we got it. We're gonna go on. Don't leave early. I, I found this quote and I thought this, 
I wish I was a wordsmith like Mike Livingston, but I'm not. So he says it well. We're going to read his words tonight. He says this. On the slide up here, showing favoritism is inconsistent with God's character, antithetical to the gospel, and therefore incompatible with faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like mic drop moment. That's what we need to know. It, it doesn't have any place um, in our fellowship as believers. But we read this, the majority of us grew up in the West, right? We read this with a Western lens. And so we have to kind of go back and remind ourselves of what was happening in that day and age. You must remember that when James was writing, he was writing in a very partial age filled with prejudice and hatred based on class and ethnicity and nationality and religious background. The context of the first century Judaism, they knew nothing of a middle class. Like what we know in America today was non-existent in their culture. We read this from the perspective of what we know of our society. So it's hard for us to really envision what was going on there. But the context of this was extreme poverty with a very few population of people who were exceptionally rich. You know, in America, we enjoy a lot of benefits and without those benefits, there can be a huge disparity between rich and poor. So we think middle-class America, middle-class America is equivalent to the very, very wealthy in the first century. And our like upper class would be like royalty in their culture. So that's kind of Think on those terms when you're thinking about this. So in the ancient world, people were routinely and permanently categorized based on whether you were Jew or whether you were Gentile, you are Greek, you are a barbarian, all these different things. And so when you read the teachings of Jesus through that lens, what you see that a significant part of the work of Jesus was to break down these barriers, right? He wanted to create a race of mankind that was based under him something new, something radical, something different. And so this early church, the unity and the openness of the early church was like jaw-dropping in this culture. They'd never seen anything like it in that day. So this unity didn't happen automatically. That's why James and the other apostles wrote about this and taught about this so that the early church would know that it is never okay to show partiality, that to hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality is never okay. So we, as Christians today, just like them back then, have to really fight and guard against bringing the culture of the world into the church, into the body of believers gathered, right? Because otherwise, we don't really even I know I'm not often not aware that I'm doing it because it's just become so ingrained in the way we treat people and the way we relate. So let's move on to this um, example that James uses in James 2, 2 through 4. He paints this picture. I think he wants to be like, okay, I told you you must not show favoritism, but let's talk a little bit more about what that could look like. You know, sometimes a professor will say something and you're like, okay, yeah, but then he explains it. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm understanding more and more. I think maybe that's what James was doing. So he paints this picture of a believer giving preferential treatment to the rich. You think, well, what would motivate this kind of behavior? I don't think it's that complicated. I think we all struggle with it today too. It's the idea that we value the rich more than we value the poor. And we do that because we think we can get something from rich people that we can't get from poor, right? It's, it's not complicated. So James paints this kind of opulent picture of this person, walk, I just picture like walking in and just finery and dripping in jewels and maybe they smell so good in every way and then someone else coming in in rags. And the, tr the treatment they receive is totally different. And James is saying, that is not how it should be. 
I think maybe some things, maybe he feared. I think if I was James, I would have feared that what was happening in the church is that people were beginning to treat the poor in the church like they were being treated outside, to be shamed and to be disregarded. And James saying, no, 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 that's not what should happen in the body of Christ. He points out that as followers of Christ, we should be distinctly different, totally different than the way of the world, the way of those who do not follow Jesus, that the aroma and the fragrance of our gathering should be something inviting that people want to come back to, not where they're worried they're going to be treated in, in an undignified way. So he's saying, but if we show partiality the way the world shows partiality, then our actions do not reflect the heart of God. And actually, our actions are are evil and vicious, and it's just wrong. So I think there's probably more than these, but I would say when we show partiality, these are the three things that that I say think that it reveals. Number one, when we show partiality, it reveals that we care more about outward appearance than we do about the heart. We care more about outward appearance than we do about the heart. You know, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, says, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the heart, so should we. You know, I think we're all reminded that nobody escapes death. I mean, last week with the news of, of Queen Elizabeth, you're like, she had money, she had power, she had influence, she died. And that's our fate as well. Like there's no one who gets to escape that, but it's our heart that matters. But what matters is the work that God is doing in our hearts. So the second thing is we misunderstand who is important and blessed in the sight of God. We misunderstand who is important and blessed in the sight of God. So we assume that the rich is more important to God and they're more blessed by God because we've put too much value on material things. And then the third thing is it shows what we value and what we don't value. It shows what we value and we don't value. We favor people for our own benefit. And right, that reveals just the selfishness in our hearts. We believe we can get more from the rich man than we can from the poor, so we treat them differently. So moving on to this next section, verses five through seven, James writes this. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to whom you belong? So James is reminding these readers that, hey, your values and God's values are not the same. They were acting in a way that was contrary to God's values. And though it's easy for us to be partial to the rich, God is not partial to the rich. In fact, Jesus even states that riches can be an obstacle in following him. And there's this sense in which God specially blesses the poor of this world. They are chosen to be rich in faith. That's what this passage says. Because the poor of this world simply have a lot more opportunities to trust God. Therefore, they may be far more rich in faith than the rich man. So we can say that God also chose the poor in a sense because Jesus left immeasurable wealth and glory to come to earth in poverty. Mary and Joseph were poor. Jesus came in poverty. He did not come in wealth and opulence. And you and I know, like when you read the verses six and seven, it's the same thing is, is happening today. The history shows that the rich can indeed oppress the poor. It happened then and it's happening now. 
But as we move on to this next section, I want to reread verse 5, and then we'll jump down to verses 8 through 11. It says this in verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? So James reminds his readers that it's the followers of Jesus who are the inheritors of the kingdom, and that Jesus, he is the king of the kingdom, and there's no one greater than him, and he gets to decide what happens in his kingdom. So in verses 8 through 11, James writes this, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is actually guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit murder also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery and do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So all of God's moral law is summarized in loving God and loving people, Like, right? It's not complicated. It's just really hard to live out, isn't it? So the royal law found in Scripture really bears the testimony of King Jesus, right? And love is this ruling principle that's at the core of God's royal law. And it's supposed to be worked out every day in our lives, that our lives would just be lives characterized by love, that we would love God and we would love people. And James says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't just say love your neighbor. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. So how do you love your neighbor? How do you love yourself? You know, I think I, I love myself with care and concern and attention. Um, but I think what the world wants to do is to twist it so that love becomes based on emotions. So whether I, I feel like loving someone or I don't feel like some loving someone, I just make excuses for that. So everything conspires to define love in emotional terms. But love is a choice, right, that you and I get to make every day all throughout the, the day. And Jesus never defined love based on a feeling. So love is not the victim of our emotions. It's the servant of our wills. And the reality is, is that we cannot enter everyone's world and meet everyone's needs. But if the basis of how I love and how I meet needs is how I can benefit from those people, then my values are not the same as Jesus' values. James is warning against this false projected image that differs greatly from what's going on on the inside. So he writes this, if you show partiality, you commit sin. The problem, you know, isn't that you're nice to rich people. That's not the problem at all. The problem is showing partiality to the rich and being unkind to the poor, right? So you can't excuse your partiality by saying, I'm just commit, um, obeying the command to love my neighbor as myself. You know, and I think some of us, it's easy for me to do the same thing, are really tempted to think, well, provided I don't kill someone today or commit some heinous crime, I think I'm okay. You know, um, if you've killed someone today, I don't want to know about it. Um, but that's not at all what James was saying. It's like, we think that we can just go along committing these quote unquote smaller sins of like, well, it's okay. It wasn't the full truth, but it was, you know, it was enough of the truth that it doesn't really matter. Or like, I just glanced over at that person's test a couple times to check my work just to make sure it was okay. Or, you know, I know that's not what really happened, but I want to make myself look better in this situation. Like all these small things, right? But James is saying, oh, no, no, do not think that favoritism falls in this like category of sins that doesn't matter. That's not how this works at all. Favoritism isn't a small matter because favoritism says that we've broken the ruling principle that God said to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? We just 
failed that test, didn't we? And James makes it clear that favoritism is not simply just being disrespectful to people. It's actually a sin against God. And that's something I didn't realize until I began to study this passage. He says, again, if you show favoritism, you commit sin. It's a sin because it's contrary to the character and the command of God, right? And because favoritism is a sin, there's no place for it in our hearts as followers of Jesus and certainly no place for it in a gathering of his people. So obeying God is not like this test that you get that's like, there's 10 questions on the test, just choose six. You know, pick the ones you want to answer and then just disregard the other ones. No, James wants to be very clear here um, and guard against selective obedience, the sort that kind of want to pick and choose what I'm going to obey today and what I'm not going to obey today. In fact, verse 10 talks about this, and I, I found this illustration. I wish I was brilliant enough to think of this, but I didn't, but I thought it was so helpful. I wanted to share it with you. That the law of God is not like this pile of stones right here on the screen. Okay, so if I took away one of those stones, what would be there? You can answer this. This is a pile of stones would still be there, right? But it's really more like a sheet of glass, like a windshield. So the next it's not my car, but I've had this happen to me before. Actually, the law of God is a lot more like a sheet of glass that even a pebble, a small, like one of those little tiny pieces of gravel that flies up and nicks your windshield. Your windshield is broken, right? So the fact of our breaking God's law is significant and has is serious because his law is an expression of his character, right? And its nature, it expresses who God is. You know, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, we read, you know, God giving Moses these 10 commandments. In those things, God is revealing himself. What he said, it's an expression of his self and his nature, which is amazing. So if we look at God's law and we're like dismissive of one, I'm saying, you know, my love for God is really lacking. And there are aspects of God's nature that I'm just choosing to disregard. I dangerously elevate myself to a position equal with God, and that is a terrible idea. So wrapping up in James 2, verses 12 through 13, this is what he said, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judged by the law that gives freedom. Have you ever been in class and someone raised their hand and was like, is this going to be on the test? And you're like, oh, buddy. Um, but you know what they're asking? They're asking, like, do I need to pay attention? Like, should I take notes or can I just, like, get on my phone and scroll? Like, that's what the person is asking. So James is saying here, okay, guys, there's a test. And there's a test at the end. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, there is no condemnation. We are covered in the blood of Jesus, and we stand righteous before God. But it doesn't remove the believer from what James is mentioning here. And that's fleshed out more in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. It says this, So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You know, a failure to display mercy indicates that we've not received mercy. Human mercy is proof of what we received, God's mercy. We deal with others like God has dealt with us. So judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who hasn't been merciful. And our mercy does not earn God's mercy, not in any way. 
it reveals that we understand mercy, doesn't it? Because when you've received his mercy, you want to extend that to other people. And ultimately, we're sinful people, right? Our merciful acts are contaminated. We're sinful. They come from such a mixed heart of emotions and of motives. But over and over again, the invitation is, is to return to the foot of the cross where the ground is level, where no one is worth more in God's sight than another person, right? That we stand before God equal, loved, equally loved. Um, so I would just like to wrap things up in this way, like just to remind you that our attitudes and actions are governed by the example and the pattern of Jesus. May that be true for each of us. If we wanna know how people are to be accepted in a group, look at Jesus. He modeled that for us. We need to exercise discernment like Jesus did, but our clarion call every single day is to be like Jesus. And that is not easy, friends. But it's nice to be a part of a group that's doing that together and that can encourage you to do that because some days are a lot harder than other days. But it's interesting when you, well, when you, when I researched more about this because I hadn't really noticed this, but James isn't stating something that's like radical or new. Actually, this is mentioned multiple times in scripture in Leviticus 19, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 through 17, Luke 20 and Acts 10. All these times, like God's heart for people, he is not impartial. He does not show favoritism. His invitation is for us to be like him. And in his kindness, he exposes our hearts for what they are, that this is an area of growth definitely in my life. This was hard to look at. I was like, oh, ouch, I don't know. Um, but something I definitely want to grow in, I need help to grow in. But in his kindness, he exposes our wrong perspective, right? He weans us away from the things that we've thought are okay in order to align our hearts with him. And the thing is, is that God has blessed every one of us with a certain degree of wealth and resources. It varies, right? None of us have the same bank account right now. But however, the amount of wealth we have in no way impacts our salvation. Not at all. When we enter heaven, no one's going to be more blessed than anyone else. We bring nothing. The diamonds, the, the bank account, the GPA, the, it all stays here, guys. It's just our souls. That's what matters. You know what I, my roommate, one of my roommates texted me last week, five hours after Queen Elizabeth died, she, she wrote, I should have screenshot of it. OMG, Aaron, the queen died. You're the only one I can think who would care. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, it's just so classic. I, my mom's Canadian, so I grew up in a home where my grandparents had like a lot of like queen stuff around, like cookie, she cookie, all sorts of things. So anyway, I've been reading a little bit about Queen Elizabeth, you know, trying to learn about her. And from what I understand, I mean, she will stand before God. I don't know. It seems like she knew the gospel. It seems like she had put her faith and trust in Jesus. I'm not sure, but I, I wanted to put some pictures up here because I thought this was really interesting. Like, like, look at these jewels, this one. And they, they're gorgeous. Like I thought, the diamonds I own, and they're so tiny. If you just put them in like a quarter teaspoon, it wouldn't even fill the quarter teaspoon. Like Queen Elizabeth and I have nothing in common. Like our names both start with E. That's where it ends. Like we don't, we don't. But our lives couldn't be more different. But yet how God views us is exact, exactly the same. Like Aaron, beloved of God, Elizabeth, beloved of God. And those jewels, I mean, it wasn't like she stuffed them in her satin gown before she died. They're here. I mean, 
I don't know if Camilla will wear those. I'm not quite sure the whole thing and how it all works. I'm not really into it all, but um, I don't know who gets to wear those next. Maybe Princess Kate, but that all stays here, right? What matters is our hearts. And so if we don't give time and attention while we're here to our hearts, then we can lead lives that are just full of regrets and relationships that are fractured because we've just lived for ourselves. So my prayer tonight is that we, as a little community of believers at USC, would begin to follow Jesus' example in this area. That we would be quick by the Holy Spirit to recognize when favoritism rears its ugly head in our lives um, and in our hearts, and that we would cooperate Him to love like Jesus. It's not gonna be easy, but I think the more we're aware of it, the more we can ask for His help in order to live this out each and every day. So let me pray, and then we're gonna welcome the worship team back up. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that it covers so many diverse topics and things that we need um, to give time and attention to. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would reveal things to us that are in our hearts that need to be more in line with yours. Thank you so much for this time and for these students gathered together. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the USC Christian Challenge podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast platforms, such as Apple Music or Spotify, where you can also give us a review. We meet every Thursday night on the University of Southern California, so get involved to find more about us, upcoming events, and weekly small groups on Instagram, at USC Challenge, and on our website, uscchristianchallenge.com.